Welcome to the Stoic Handbook Podcast. This is John Brooks speaking. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for being a member of the Stoic Handbook community and taking the time out of your day to listen to my podcast, read my newsletter, and put the ideas to practice to level up your practical wisdom. If you're a fan of my work and you want to support the show, you can sign up to the premium version of the Stoic Handbook Podcast. You can either do this directly from within Apple Podcasts or you can go on stoichandbook.supercast.com. When you sign up to Stoic Handbook Premium, you'll get access to my existing library of Stoic meditation and contemplation courses. I make each course about a specific emotional topic like negative thinking or anxiety, relationships, anger, etc., as well as workshops, exclusive Ask Me Anything sessions, and ad-free standard episodes. There's a seven-day free trial, so you can check it out, see if it's good for you. I'm always adding new content and I take a lot of time to craft my courses to make them as high quality as can be. One of the listeners of the Stoic Handbook Premium told me that they listened to my anxiety course over 50 times. People often like to go through them over and over again. So like I said, you can check it out, see if it's a good fit for you. It's this podcast plus a bunch of premium episodes, meditations, talks, workshops, etc. And I also open up the space for questions as well. If you want to talk to me and get me to record a podcast episode on a specific topic for you, that's what Stoic Handbook Premium is there for. Now let's go into today's episode. Welcome, fellow Stoics. A while back, I had the pleasure of speaking with Donald Robertson. Donald is one of my favorite Stoicism writers. He is the author of Verissimus, a graphic novel about the life of Marcus Aurelius, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. He's currently working on a book about Socrates. And I generally recommend read everything written by Donald Robertson, and you can't go far wrong. Donald also has a background as a clinical psychologist with expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy. This episode was originally published on the High Existence podcast, but this is going to be the first time I've ever shared it with the Stoic Handbook audience. In the episode, you'll get a fantastic introduction to ancient philosophy and Stoicism. We'll talk about how to read the key Stoic texts, the relationship between therapy and Stoicism, as well as tons of personal recommendations of how to apply Stoicism to your daily life. Wishing you a great day, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so you've just written, you've written a few books, but your most recent book is How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. So I want to start here with like a specific question. Then the specific question is, why did you, uh, why did you personally want to write this book? Why were you passionate about spending the time writing this book? And the the second, more general question is, why would someone want to think like Marcus Aurelius? Uh-huh. Cool. So those are both very good questions. And the the reason why I wanted to write this book in particular is, I guess there's two parts to it. I mean, one is that I've been involved with Stoicism for about 20 years now, I think. Um, so there's a long backstory to my involvement with Stoicism personally and in my work and my previous writing about it. And also my involvement with what's now called the Modern Stoicism Organization, which is a non-profit organization run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers. Um, it was founded in 2012 and I, I'm one of the founding members of that organization. So there's all that side of it. Mm-hmm. And then why specifically did I write this rather than, for example, just another kind of general introduction to Stoicism? Well, I'd already written 
um, a couple of books on stoicism and I'd written a general self-help introduction to the subject and there are a bunch of books like that that came out recently so I, I wanted to write something different I didn't think there was any point reinventing the wheel and I, I felt that from my experience of teaching people about stoicism they, there are certain typical misconceptions that people have or stumbling points so for example many people confuse stoicism with the, an uppercase S, the Greek school of philosophy, with lowercase stoicism, uh, uh, the personality trait or coping style, which mm. kind of means being unemotional or just kind of being tough-minded or something. And so sometimes people think stoics are kind of unemotional and they have a kind of simplistic view of what it would mean to be stoic because they confuse these two words, basically. So that's fairly common. And I, I realise that often we can get around some of the misconceptions by pointing at examples of real people who were real Stoics and using them as role models, as it were, and talking about how they actually applied it in practice. And then you get to put a human face on Stoicism and you get a kind of more rounded and more complete picture of what it actually means. And also for many people, it's much more engaging to hear anecdotes and stories about historical figures rather than just to be kind of lectured on the theory, as it were. Mm. <clears throat> and... Uh, you know, I looked around for a good example. For the Stoics, their supreme role model was Socrates, actually, um, and to some extent Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. But we don't know that much about Zeno. And the Stoic we know most about, without a shadow of doubt, uh, the most famous Stoic is Marcus Aurelius, because he was a Roman emperor. So we have several surviving Roman histories that describe his reign. And we have his book, The Meditations, which gives us some insights into his own personal uh, coping style and uh, he talks for example in the first book of the meditations a lot about his relationships with his family and teachers so we can kind of reconstruct a picture of Marcus Aurelius's life and I wanted to tell in parallel or intertwined the external story of his reign and his actions uh, as Roman Emperor and the internal story of his journey and personal development and coping style as a Stoic philosopher um, through, you know, which we know mainly through his writings and the meditations and to kind of weave these two things more closely together. So I, I thought Marcus Aurelius uh, is very popular. Like he's, he's the best known Stoic uh, among people that are interested in the subject today. And it makes for a kind of engaging story. It's easy to, to portray Stoicism in this way. And the other reason I chose to do that is that I have a daughter who was five years old. She's now seven. Uh, she was five when I started working on this. And she loves Greek mythology, and mm -hmm. I told her a lot of stories. And when I ran out of stories from Greek mythology, I started to tell her stories about Greek philosophy. And she loves Socrates and Diogenes the Cynic. Incidentally, we mainly know about Diogenes the Cynic through anecdotes about his life. Uh, he has no surviving writings. So there are Greek philosophers who we, we know primarily through anecdotes, and there are lots of anecdotes about them. And so my little girl Poppy was very interested in these stories, and I, I realised that's one way that philosophy was communicated in the ancient world. And I thought if it's good enough for her and she finds it, it relatable in this way, then for adults as well, maybe telling the story about uh, Marcus Aurelius and also some anecdotes about Socrates and Diogenes and the figures that inspired Marcus would be a, a different way of communicating the philosophy and helping people to understand it. So I think maybe that's a bit long-winded, but hopefully that's a good answer to your first question. Yeah, And then absolutely. remind me, what was the second question again? 
So the the second question was like in a general sense, why would someone want to think more like Marcus Aurelius? Why would somebody want to think more like Marcus Aurelius? And I, I suppose that's like asking why would somebody want to think like a Stoic? Because you yeah. know everything we know about Marcus's inner life comes from his writings, the Meditations, where he's very much enacting and applying Stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy, you could say, is a kind of in some ways was a sort of resurgence and a condensation of the Socratic tradition. So the Stoics would say to think like a Stoic, to a large extent, is is, is kind of like thinking like Socrates as well. And mm. they would say that what they were trying to do was encapture practical wisdom of the form embodied by Socrates, and that this is the key to fulfilment and also to a kind of happiness. So for them, it's kind of an odd question because they think they're just describing the optimum state of mind for a human being, and also a state of that for them was synonymous with mental health. They thought if you think like Socrates and you uh, attain the state of enlightenment or practical wisdom, you'll also learn to master your desires and your emotions and become more emotionally healthy and more uh, uh, better able to function and flourish in life as a result. So it's a recipe for mental health and fulfillment, a, a kind of self-help philosophy, if you like. Hmm. And like you've you've been a practicing psychotherapist right? For like many years? Yes. Uh, most of my adult life, really, as soon as I left university, it was unusual, actually. I became a psychotherapist, uh, kind of slightly younger age than normal. Um, in fact, I had to get exemption from the, the school that I uh, initially trained with, had an age limit. I think it was maybe 25. And I started training when I was 23 or 24 or something. Um, and, you know, I was able to do that in part because initially I worked as a schools counsellor and for a youth project in South London. So even though I was kind of in my mid-20s, I was working with mainly teenagers as my mm -hmm. clients initially. And then I, in London, I had a clinic for many years in Harley Street doing psychotherapy. And I became a trainer of psychotherapists and a supervisor as well and began writing and lecturing and speaking at conferences and stuff. And uh, since I emigrated to Canada uh, about uh, five years ago now, though, I've mainly been writing and uh, I and doing training, uh, primarily online training. I do a lot of e-learning based stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And did you get a chance to um, incorporate Stoicism, Stoic thought into your psychotherapy practice? Yeah, um, because I mainly practice cognitive behavioral therapy, which is inspired by Stoicism originally anyway. So Albert Ellis in the 1950s was the pioneer of cognitive therapy. Uh, he called his approach rational emotive behavior therapy. And Ellis had read the Stoics. And mm -hmm. he was originally a, a psychoanalytic therapist, but he became disillusioned with that, like a lot of people around that time. And he decided to kind of start again from scratch and reinvent his whole therapeutic approach. And he did that by drawing, to a large extent, upon the Stoics. And in fact, Ellis used to quote Epictetus, the most famous Stoic teacher, to all of his clients. And he shared a very famous quote that became a cliche among subsequent generations of cognitive therapists, and it comes from section five of the handbook of Epictetus, where he says, it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about things. And that mm. encapsulates what psychologists call the cognitive theory of emotion today, the idea that it's beliefs um, or thoughts that determine to a large extent our emotional responses. And that's really the, the cornerstone of cognitive therapy. So it was kind of easy for me to assimilate 
stoicism because it's a kind of cousin of cognitive therapy anyway. And, uh, you know, I didn't usually kind of introduce my clients to stoicism, but I wrote about it online and I talked about it. So increasingly over the years, I found that my clients were asking me about stoicism and saying they were interested in it. And so if it kind of came from them, then I'd, I'd, I'd maybe give them some stuff to read or I'd teach them some stoic exercises and things like that. Mm. So you mentioned that stoicism is a, is a kind of a philosophy that will help people who practice it uh, achieve mental health, uh, imp- imp- like a, a good mental health. Yeah. So does that apply across the board? Are there certain things that stoicism is better, is stoicism <clears throat> is better for? Or, or, or like I was thinking trauma, for example. Yeah. Um, if someone has experienced trauma, would stoicism be useful for that situation? Or is it more useful for, for like sort of coping <clears throat> with adversity? Well, the answer, the short answer is kind of yes and no, and it's complicated, basically. Right. So in cognitive therapy, I guess this, the, one of the things that people often don't understand about the, the way these two things would be related is that in cognitive therapy, we normally match the treatment protocol to the diagnosis, basically. Mm. And so that would mean that the type of treatment that we do with a client is research-based. So if you're treating post-traumatic stress disorder, you look at what all the research evidence says about post-traumatic stress disorder, and you look at, in addition to that, specific protocols or treatment approaches that have been tested out with that particular problem, and you pick an evidence-based approach to treatment. So that's how we do things these days. So the idea that you would just kind of draw on stoicism as your main approach doesn't fly. That doesn't make sense in cognitive therapy in general, Mm -hmm. because it would be too broad and too generic, if you like. We normally have to look for tried and tested empirically-based protocols. But those protocols often overlap a lot with many of the principles and techniques of stoicism because stoicism was a more generic general purpose of forerunner of cognitive therapy. So it may be that some of the things that you're doing in treatment for PTSD resemble things that you could relate to Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or other Stoics writings. There would be bits and pieces of overlap and that the degree of that would vary from one client to another and it would vary depending on the type of treatment that you're doing. For example, If you're treating somebody who has a blood phobia, like your main treatment approach would be exposure therapy um, Mm. and teaching them techniques to control their blood pressure so that they don't faint. And and so that's not very cognitive. It's more behavioral and there wouldn't be as much overlap there with stoicism, if you like. But in treating problems like generalized anxiety disorder or clinical depression, it would would potentially be a more cognitive-oriented treatment and there might be more opportunities to make connection with Stoic philosophy. But there's another part to the story, which is that prevention, as, a, as we all know, is better than cure, right? Mm. And cognitive therapy is a therapy. It's remedial, and it's designed to be short-term, time-limited, diagnosis-driven, so it's more narrow in scope by its very nature, and it comes after the event, so it's remedial, it's a therapy. But the holy grail of mental health would be a preventative training approach or intervention. And we tend to refer to preventative approaches in mental health as emotional resilience training. And so I believe that stoicism holds more promise as a preventative emotional resilience building approach, a broad-based approach to long-term uh, well-being and resilience mm. rather than 
thinking of it as a, an intervention for a specific type of problem that would come after the event. So it can kind of do both, and the ancient Stoics did both to some extent, but it was originally conceptualised, obviously, as a philosophy of life, and therefore as a broad-based, more preventative approach. And we haven't... There's not as much research in that area. It's harder to do research in that area. But I really believe that the future of Stoicism... Actually, I just wrote an article about this in a, a journal called The Behaviour Therapist, where mm -hmm. I argued that... You know, it's important to draw parallels with cognitive therapy, but we should be looking more at stoicism uh, as a, a different type of intervention, as a, a preventative intervention. Right, yeah, that makes sense to me because stoicism is, you know, you can practice it as a way of life. Yeah, it's permanent, like, right? It's, it's permanent. something you, you permanently embrace as your worldview, whereas cognitive therapy, to a larger extent, is, is something you do for a few months and then you stop doing Right. Yeah. One th question that I like, this something that kind of um, inspires me about the great Stoics is the the level that they attained in their tranquility. Uh, like Marcus Aurelius is an, like just an incredible figure, that much power, um, like the ability to be so corrupt. And yet, you know, like, I don't think there's much evidence of him acting in a way that abused his power. Um is that right? Yeah, I mean, there are actually, there are criticisms of Marcus Aurelius, both explicit ones and kind of implied ones in the histories. If you look closely, I wrote an article about this at one point. But for any of the criticisms, it's kind of easy to answer them. Um, and so there's a bunch of different things, but there's kind of responses to them, to them all that we can use to defend Marcus or to dismiss the things that were said. There's not really many serious criticisms of him, you could say. Um, but he, he did have a, a faction opposing him and actually there was a civil war during his reign. So you could say, well, that from that, it's clear that he did have any political enemies. Right. Um, but certainly as emperors go, history and, you know, and the generations that followed judged him as one of the good emperors, one of the best emperors. He was reputed as a philosopher, as someone who showed clemency and uh, beneficence, generosity. He was known for his uh, philanthropy. And, uh, you know, it's easy to compare him to bad emperors like Caligula and Nero, for example, or his own son, Commodus. So you can see how power corrupted other emperors. And, and Marcus uh, is definitely someone that contrasts with that. He, he kept his head, even though he was in supreme power. Well, that's one of the things that I find so inspiring is that uh, like today, there are a lot of people now with the the resurgence of stoicism in our popular culture that practice stoicism and people who practice personal development. But very few people seem to go to the same lengths as Seneca, mm -hmm. Epictetus and, and Marcus Aurelius. So what do you think set these figures apart from sort of like your everyday practitioners of stoicism, what did they do that we are not? Because I can't really imagine myself being able to, you know, kill myself uh -huh. with tranquility, you know? <laughs> like so, yeah, like Seneca. Actually, I would say that they're, they, they're different. They're very different examples. Um, although they differ from us today, I would also distinguish them from each other. So Seneca has a more complicated political history. Um, there are definitely grounds for questioning Seneca's adherence to Stoicism, and, and mm. that's long been uh, questioned. So we don't really, it's hard to say for sure, but history has left us a, painted as a, a more ambiguous picture of Seneca's character. Um, you, you could argue that he propped up Nero's, like, 
basically dictatorship, that he was a propagandist for a, a, an oppressive regime. And it, it, there's some indications that the other Stoics weren't very keen on Seneca um, mm. as well. He During Nero's reign, uh, Thrasea was the head of the Stoic opposition, and uh, Cassius Dio implies very strongly that Thrasea said that no one should mention uh, people like Seneca's name again. And it's notable that actually Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius never mentioned Seneca. Um, so it, it may be that his, his name, uh, was kind of mud among subsequent generations of Stoics, possibly. We can't wow. know for sure. And certainly Cassius Dale paints quite a negative picture of him at times. Um, so history is left as a more ambiguous picture of Seneca's character. Epictetus seems like someone who had a reputation for being very committed to living like a Stoic and someone who appears to have lived in poverty um, and to have had a very uh, quite an austere view of Stoicism closer to, to ancient cynicism. And uh, Epictetus may also represent a kind of return to the roots of Stoicism, whereas Seneca has a more urbane kind of view of Stoicism. Seneca was one of the wealthiest men in history, actually, um, wow. whereas Epictetus was a very, uh, a very humble and a very poor man. So they're, they're quite contrasting characters in terms of their social status and lifestyle. Um, and Marcus Aurelius is kind of weirdly somewhere in between. He um, was emperor and obviously so very powerful, but also he seems to have aligned himself with Epictetus's approach to Stoicism. And so he has quite a strict view of Stoicism. And Marcus is the sort of guy who was, today we would call a workaholic. Um, mm. He was incredibly dedicated to his duties as emperor. I mean, one thing that really shines through is he took his role incredibly seriously. And he was very studious about it and very committed to it. And he was trying really hard to, to live up to the high standard that he believed had been set by his adoptive father, the Emperor Antoninus Pius, who he took as a, uh, the role model as a, of a, a, a kind of ideal, um, benevolent and just emperor. So he, he took out his role very, very seriously. We can see that in the meditations. And I guess in terms of commitment to it, Marcus started training in philosophy at an unusually early age. Um, People would get into philosophy, normally uh, Romans, not until they were about maybe 15 at the earliest and perhaps significantly older than that. But Marcus allegedly started studying philosophy when he was 12 years old, which mm. was notable to the, the Romans. They thought that was unusually early. And he had some of the best Stoic tutors and philosophical tutors assigned to him in the world at that time and he seems to have been pretty committed to studying philosophy throughout his life there's also an anecdote about how he was laughed at for still attending the lectures of stoic philosophers toward the end of his life so it was joked that you know it's usually younger men that attend these lectures and, and even the emperor is going to school as an old man mm -hmm. people thought that was kind of amusing so he seems thoroughly dedicated to stoicism from an early age and you know that's partly why he we might say he he achieved a, a, a more thorough transformation if you like than most people would would uh, imagine possible today um but uh, also, oddly perhaps, Marcus Aurelius wasn't a Stoic teacher. And he, he certainly, he seems to have thought of himself, even in middle age or old age, as a, as a novice 
stoic, a student of stoicism. Um, and, you know, so despite the fact that he was committed to it and uh, studying it very intensely from uh, throughout, you know, his entire life from age 12. So you like I, I find it super fascinating what like the study of Stoicism is. You said that Marcus Aurelius considered himself a novice. He, he, there, there are examples of him attending Stoic classes, middle age, towards the end of his life. Uh, from what I know about Stoicism, Stoicism is not just the acquisition of knowledge. Um, so what to you is the study of Stoicism and how could you continue to deepen your study as you as you age uh, today the i mean stoicism is a practical philosophy and actually you could even say some people say the clues in the name itself now mm. funnily enough uh, some of the other philosophical schools maybe most other philosophical schools in, in greece and rome tended to be named after their founder like pythagoreanism and epicureanism and you know uh, maybe even to some extent platonism and aristotelianism although they kind of also had other names and stoicism was originally called xenoism or xenonism after its founder zeno but that name was dropped almost immediately by the stoics and they instead named what they did after the place where they met the stoapoikale or the painted porch and I think that's significant because they, it, to me, it suggests that they didn't want to turn it into a kind of personality cult, and mm. that Zeno didn't claim to be an enlightened sage. He, uh, you know, he thought we were all flawed, and so part of Stoicism seems to be this kind of acknowledgement that nobody is perfect, which I, I think is quite significant actually. But also, you could say the name resonates at another level because the Stoicoikale was on the edge of the Agora where Socrates used to teach in the, the, the city centre of Athens in the marketplace among common people. And that was odd because philosophers and sophists used to teach more commonly in the gymnasia, um, you know, where you'd expect people to give large public lectures and stuff. And Socrates was just kind of milling about talking to tradesmen and stuff and random people. He was known for talking to a really mixed bag of different people from different walks of life. Men, women, younger, older, Athenians, foreigners, free men, slaves. You know, he didn't kind of discriminate. He's very cosmopolitan in that respect. And that kind of shocked mm -hmm. Athenians in a way. But the Stoics were reprising that. Um, they taught out in the open and public on the edge of the marketplace. And Stoicism was always kind of known for this openness and egalitarianism. Um, but also you could say, like, a Stoa is kind of like an arcade. Um, it's, it's covered for shade and there might have been like uh, exhibits there or possibly stalls on it, but it's a little bit like calling it a philosophy of the street is what I'm driving at. The name itself, mm -hmm. like the stoic philosophy, the philosophy of the porch, you could say also kind of implies philosophy out in the open, philosophy on the street, philosophy in the marketplace. And it implies this kind of reaching out to the common people and doing things out in public um, aspect of, of stoicism. And, uh, you know, so stoicism was, was always a kind of grassroots kind of practical philosophy more so than, for example, Plato's Academy taught, as the name implies, Plato's approach became more academic uh, and more abstract in a way. And so the stoics put more emphasis on psychological techniques um, in my first book on stoicism, I made a list of the ones that we can identify. And I think there are about 20 
there that are listed, depending on how you kind of carve that list up. So in the meditations, we see Marcus using those psychological techniques and describing his use of them in a kind of private journal, like a therapy journal format, if you like. And mm -hmm. so people today can practice the same psychological techniques and we can reconstruct those from the ancient techniques, uh, from the ancient texts. And we can also kind of adapt them by looking at what we know about modern psychology and CBT and what's kind of practical today in terms of some of these exercises or what, how we might tweak or adjust them to make them more workable. And we do that in modern stoicism. We have an event every year called Stoic Week. Uh, last year, 8,000 people around the world took part. And Stoic Week is for seven days, uh, an online course where people listen to audio recordings of guided meditations, where they discuss ideas and where they practice contemplation exercises or other psychological strategies, um, trying out different ones uh, on each of the seven days of the course. And so that's one way people can immediately get some experience of the practical side of Stoicism. And... I, I love that. And I, I know that like one of the things I've struggled with, with the practice of stoicism is, is having a, like some sort of roadmap for it. When it comes to Buddhism, there's, you know, the, it's quite simple. It's like daily meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, with stoicism, there are many different types. You have recorded meditations on your site that I've listened to that I think are fantastic. Uh, there are many different books. Um, how, how does someone, you know, become a stoic? Well, like, so I'm 29. How would you yeah. recommend if I've got 10 years now to really like embody the stoic philosophy? What could I do, you know, over the next 10 years to, to rise to that challenge? Okay. Well, I mean, I'll give you a short answer to that. I mean, one, like I say, would be have a go at doing stoic week because it's a good introduction. Another mm. one would be if you wanted a real kind of reduction of stoicism, we kind of have that already in the form of the handbook of Epictetus, right? Which yeah. was designed to be a condensed version of Stoicism, like a bunch of bullet points almost. It's like 50 passages. So it's just really a, a short booklet. And uh, it was designed to focus on the practical application of Stoicism. So we have a, an ancient little handbook. And the, you, if you want to get to the essence of that handbook, you, you just need to look at the opening sentence. And the opening sentence of the 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 Enchiridion or the handbook of Epictetus says some things are up to us and other things are not. And then, and we call this the dichotomy of control today, or I call it the stoic fork. So making a clearer distinction between the things that are under our direct voluntary control and everything else in life, which isn't under our direct voluntary control or not entirely so. And so Epictetus clearly thinks this is absolutely foundational to even a basic understanding of stoicism, putting it into practice. And I think that's a good place to start today. So grasping that idea, returning to it from different perspectives, working on it every day, you know, everything else in stoicism can be seen as relating back to that foundational concept. Hmm. And then also, like I mentioned earlier, passage five, that's close to the start of the same handbook says it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about things. Incidentally, that concept can be found in the Socratic dialogues, both of Plato and Xenophon. So I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I think that probably goes all the way back to Socrates. It's not an innovation of Epictetus as such. But that idea, which I would call cognitive distancing, is foundational to cognitive therapy. And I think that's also uh, a saying that people should meditate on every day or certainly that they should return to very frequently. And in reading the handbook, and particularly focusing on those two foundational principles, 
is a good conceptual or, or theoretical starting point. It's, you know, it, it's, it, I say theoretical, but really those are concepts that have a direct practical application. Mm-hmm. And the two other practical things I would suggest is that this is hinted at in the Stoics, um, but it kind of, when we started teaching people about Stoicism, we realized it makes it much easier if they have a daily routine whereby in the evening they review their progress and then in the morning they plan the day ahead. And so uh, that framework complements the other Stoic exercises really well. We use it in Stoic Week and also in Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training, which is the other bigger uh, training course that we run through the Modern Stoicism organization. And the the Galen, Marcus, is a re- Marcus Aurelius' physician, he wrote a book about philosophical therapy, which draws mm-hmm. on lost works by the Stoics about therapy. And he describes this idea of reviewing your day, um, referring to a famous text called The Golden Verses of Pythagoras, where it says you should never allow your eyes to close at night until you've reviewed the preceding day three times. And that same passage is referred to also by Seneca and Epictetus and directly in relation to Stoicism. So it looks like that idea originated with the Pythagoreans and was probably adopted by the Stoics. But certainly it provides a very good framework within which you can then use any number of other Stoic practices. And in addition to that, I would say a, a good contemplative technique. Pierre Hadot one of the main, uh, now deceased, uh, modern scholars of Stoicism, said that a technique that he called, he dubbed the view from above, which is very popular among followers of Stoicism today, is important because it brings together many of the philosophical and metaphysical themes found in Stoicism. So in the view from above, we try to imagine the universe as a whole, or we try to imagine the world seen from high above, basically. And... Mm -hmm. That particular exercise, I think, unites many of the different themes and concepts that are found within Stoicism. So it's a good technique for Stoics to return to frequently if they want to kind of consolidate their their practice. Wonderful. Those are some really good uh, starting points, I think, for the practice of Stoicism. With regards to reading, is there a specific way you recommend reading Stoicism? Yeah. Um, how do how do you approach <laughs> reading? Well, I've talked to many many people about this over the years. Do you mean which texts people should read and stuff like that? Or? Which texts? But also, like um, you know, I, I would imagine that just simply reading cover to cover yeah. is not the best way to to soak up the wisdom in these books. No, I mean, in terms of, first of all, the easy part of the question is which books to read. Almost everybody reads the meditations first. Yeah. And Marcus is largely a follower of Epictetus. So, and as I've mentioned, the handbook of Epictetus is pretty short. It's like a digested version of his philosophy. So read the meditations, then read the handbook. Then, if you like that, read the discourses of Epictetus, which are extended version of the same ideas. Then read Seneca's letters to Lucilius, or moral epistles, or whatever you want to call them. If you like that, read Seneca's other letters and essays. And then from that point onwards, you can just choose whatever. But the the next thing people would normally read would be Cicero, who was not a Stoic. He was an academic um, philosopher, but he was into a form of academic philosophy that assimilated many aspects of Stoicism. And Cicero was a very highly educated man and he knew a great deal about Stoicism. So he's, he 
although not a Stoic himself, he's one of our major sources for understanding early Greek Stoicism. So usually people will turn to Cicero next, and the, probably the main texts there would be uh, De Finibus, or On Moral Ends, and hmm. also the Tusculan Disputations, and then there's like a bunch of other things by him that might be relevant. And then you, may, people might want to look at modern books on Stoicism, like maybe Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way, or uh, William Irving's uh, A Guide to the Good Life, or My Own Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, or How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. There's a bunch of more recent books that, that people enjoy reading as well. So those are the books I would say to people to, to read. And there are loads and loads of other ancient texts that are relevant as well, I have to say. Um, and by the way, if anyone's familiar with the Stoics and are looking for a slightly more obscure book, um, mm -hmm. there's an early modern author called the Earl of Shaftesbury who was writing in the 17th century, if I remember rightly. And he wrote a book called The Philosophical Regimen, um, which is his own version of the meditations. And he quotes the Greek of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus pretty extensively. So you also get a kind of commentary on the Stoics who wrote in Greek uh, alongside his own kind of attempt to reproduce their philosophy and apply it in, in the 16th or 17th century. So it's a fantastic book. And if people haven't come across that and they love the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, they might also want to read the philosophical regimen of the, the Earl of Shaftesbury. It's, it's thoroughly a Stoic text. So in terms of how you read the books, some, it depends which books we're talking about. The, the meditations, I, I've, I don't know how many times I've read the meditations and in how many different translations. And, and that's not unusual. Like many people will actually just read that book over and over and over again and then read it in the, in different orders and in different translations. And the same with the handbook of, of Epictetus. So there are some people that will just kind of immerse themselves in the texts like that. Um, another way of, of studying the subject is I, what I do, and, and this is kind of, it's easier, actually, if, if people would look at the course that I run in Marcus Aurelius, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, uh, mm -hmm. the online course or the book that, that I've written. The, another way of approaching it is to kind of look for the themes in the text. So, for example, Marcus Aurelius says that he struggled with his own feelings of anger. And there are many references to anger management in the meditations. And also we have a whole book by Seneca called On Anger. So another good way of reading the text is to say, well, what do the Stoics specifically say about coping with anger and kind of bringing all of that information together? Or what do they say about coping with pain? There's a lot of stuff in the meditations about how Marcus coped with chronic pain and illness, but it's scattered throughout the text. But what happens if we kind of bring all those references together in one place and review how they relate to one another? It paints a slightly different picture, a more uh, rounded, a more coherent picture of what he's saying about that particular problem. And it's obviously of direct practical relevance if that's a problem that people are dealing with. So in my course and in my book, I, I organise the content thematically like that. And that, that's another good way of accessing the text. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for listing some of those books because a few of those I would never have thought to look at, especially Cicero. So I'm excited to dive into that. Um, so, and generally you're saying like rereading, um, books, the, the books in different translations and just going back over them is so like aiming for depth rather than just adding more stoic books to the reading list is a good I, way to study. Yeah, the stoics would say that. I think, I believe there's a passage, if I remember rightly, where Marcus even says, or Seneca, I think actually says this, that, you know, it's better to read one book very thoroughly and slowly and really digest it than just to read lots of different books superficially. 
So people that love stoicism often read the meditations over and over and over again. I, I don't know how many times I've read that book. You know, I've been, I've been reading it over and over for years and, and studying it in the original Greek to some extent as well. Um, wow. and you, you can squeeze more and more out of it the more you read it. I'm always, I meet people who tell me they've read that book many times and so they think they've nothing else to learn from it. But I can tell you within five minutes of talking to them, I, I, I can usually identify that they, <laughs> they've only really, you know, scratched the surface that, you know, that there's a lot of things they haven't noticed about it. Um, that if they dug a little bit deeper, they would, they would probably realize. So it takes a little bit of work really to kind of get all of the meaning out of these texts and, uh, and to really digest also the practical relevance of them. You need to start living by them and putting them into practice on a, a daily basis, obviously. And also mm. just to return to what I said earlier, by the way, in addition to all of the other stuff I said, I, as a little footnote to that, I, I'm very much one of these people who believe the Stoics were Socratic philosophers. And therefore, I strongly believe that if you've read most of the Stoic texts, you should definitely also read the Socratic dialogues um, and study Socrates in general. Like So particularly the early Platonic dialogues and the, the dialogues of Xenophon. Um, the memorabilia of Xenophon was reputedly what inspired Zeno to become a philosopher, actually. And the, the Stoics refer to Xenophon's version of Socrates as much as they refer to Plato, incidentally. So I, I would say to people, go and study Socrates because he was the kind of granddaddy of Stoicism. And so he, he helps to shed a lot of light on uh, what they're saying. From Socrates, we actually get more of the kind of argument, the philosophical um, basis uh, for the techniques, whereas with the Stoics, you get something that's more like a kind of condensed or bullet point version of Socratic philosophy, arguably. Great, great pointers. Regarding the dialogues, um, so I, I got my hands on the complete works of Plato, but it's such a big collection. <laughs> are there, are yeah. there any like sort of places yeah. to start that you would recommend? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll tell you exactly where to start. <laughs> so this might be, I mean, everyone's got their favorite dialogues, right? But it's the earlier uh, Socratic dialogues are, are the ones that are most relevant to Stoicism. The, the one that I would tell everyone to start with is the Apology, because it's a masterpiece, right? Everyone on the planet. You know, I don't force books on people normally, but there's a part of me that thinks everybody on the planet should be forced to read Plato's Apology, because it's one of the <laughs> finest pieces of philosophical literature in the history of the Western canon, right? And, uh, and it's a book, it's a text that you should read multiple times and study in different translations. It's incredible. And you get in tiny fragmentary form, the kind of precursor of ideas that were developed, uh, by later schools of philosophy and, and uh, using more complex arguments. So the definitely read the apology and. Uh, I, the Euthydemus is also kind of particularly relevant to the Stoic concept of virtue. Uh, in addition to Plato, I would also say definitely read Xenophon's Memorabilia, um, because that's a collection of shorter dialogues that's very relevant to, to Stoicism as well. Just work your through, way through the Memorabilia. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, oh, also, I'm a, a little bit of explanation that Plato's magnum opus is the Republic, obviously. And a lot mm -hmm. of people start reading Plato by trying to read The Republic, which is a bad idea because it's his longest book, right? Or I think it may be his second longest, actually. But it, it's really 10 separate dialogues. And it's generally felt that the first book of The Republic is stylistically different from the rest of it and looks like it 
may have been written at a much earlier stage and then the other nine books were added later. And the other nine books are kind of more repetitive and more political and more platonic, whereas the first book seems much more Socratic. And so I would say read book one of The Republic and then, you know, forget about the rest of it for the short term. You can come back to it later. But read the Apology in book one of The Republic first and then maybe the Euthydemus and then Xenophon. Excellent. Wow. Okay. So I have some reading to do <laughs> and I'm sure our, list, our listeners do too. Uh, you talk about this a little bit in how to think like a Roman emperor, but um, for our listeners as well, I'm, I want you to, if you could talk a little bit about how Stoicism has changed your life personally and like what kind of changes you've experienced in your own development uh, right. from the study of Stoicism. Gosh, I mean, actually, I, there's a preface to How to Think Like a Roman Emperor where I, I talk about my own personal development because that's something that people ask about. So it's hard for me to write that because it's quite personal. It, it mm. begins actually with my father passing away when I was about 13 years old or 14 years old. Um, and so I, I kind of was looking for a philosophy of life. And, and my father was a Freemason. And, you know, people might not know much about Freemasonry, but it's pretty popular in the part of Scotland where I grew up. And most of my friends' fathers were, were Freemasons as well. And what my father took from that was a kind of Hellenistic-inspired philosophy of life um, that was, you know, also inspired by Christianity and the, and the Old Testament and stuff as well. And I was looking for something like that, um, but maybe a little bit different. And so I found that, first of all, in Socrates and in Plato. And then I studied philosophy at university. But I, I reached a point where I had a kind of internal conflict in a way because I was studying Buddhism and practicing Buddhism and I was practicing self-help techniques and meditation and self-hypnosis. And I was into Freud and psychoanalysis and uh, psychotherapy in general. And I was studying philosophy, particularly Wittgenstein and Heidegger. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to bring philosophy, self-help and psychology or psychotherapy together somehow. But it felt to me like these were basically three different things that were kind of fighting within me. Like, uh, and they, they didn't really connect together. Like there were like three jigsaw pieces that didn't really slot together like they should. And then I discovered the Stoics, because usually when you study philosophy, you know, Stoicism is one of the few major schools of philosophy that you don't normally get taught about um, in a, a degree course, uh, uh, typically. So I kind of had to discover the Stoics myself after I, I'd been studying philosophy for four years at, at Aberdeen. And as soon as I began reading the Stoics and reading Pierre Hadot's books on them, his excellent commentaries on them, um, suddenly I had a kind of epiphany. And I realized that Stoicism was like cognitive therapy, that mm -hmm. it was like Buddhism because it had these uh, contemplative exercises and the spiritual philosophy of life, and that it, it was like Socratic philosophy. Like, And I thought, in this kind of blinding flash of lightning, I thought these three things that I'm interested in are perfectly welded together, synthesized and united in the Stoic school of philosophy. And something within me kind of relaxed the moment I realized that. And throughout the rest of my life, I, I felt that I'd solved a puzzle that had been bugging me until I was like about, you know, 22 years old or however old I was at that point. And then one day it just resolved itself and it all came together. And I thought, I now know what it is I'm into. I'm into Stoicism because it unites the three main 
aspects of life and of self-improvement that I'm concerned with into one holistic uh, philosophy. Wow, that's a beautiful story. Uh, and I can tell that you're still so passionate about it and that really comes through. Yeah, it hasn't gone away. Amazing teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's testament. I've stayed with it. And I, I usually find that people, you know, it's funny, I've not met many, I mean, I've met many, many, many people over the years who are into stoicism. It's part of my job, you know. I organized the mm-hmm. conference in Toronto a couple of years ago and we had 400 people at that. We had 8,000 people doing a Stoic Week Online. We do that every year. And then we've got 46,000 people in the Facebook group I run. So I meet every day I'm talking to people about it. And I, I don't think I've ever met anyone, strangely, who told me they used to be into Stoicism. How weird is that? I've never met anyone who said, I used to be into Stoicism and then I moved on to Taoism or something else instead. Never met a single person that said that to me. Every person I've ever met who's got into Stoicism seems to have, to some extent, stayed into it. Like, they, they never can, uh, they never seem to let it drop, oddly. That's, and that's quite remarkable. That is remarkable. And, like, I was having similar thoughts about that as well. And one of the reasons I think that might be the case is because, unlike a lot of contemporary self-help, Stoicism deals with these existential issues that never go away, you know, just like, like life, death, desire, relationships, wealth, fame. And it's a philosophy of life. It's a blueprint and I don't see how, like, it's so wise, unless you've got a, a, like a better philosophy than, than stoicism. I don't really see why you would stop being into stoicism. Yeah. Um, and so and the, the stoic writings are very memorable as well. Uh, the stoics mm. wrote in a laconic style inspired by the, inspired by the Spartans. And so they, they tend to write like in aphorisms. Seneca was criticized for that during his day. People thought it was a bit crass. That he came mm. out with all these sound bites, but now it, it, it's people appreciate it more fully in it because it's easy to memorize these sayings and principles, and that that remains with people. I used to joke about this and say I've never met anyone with a, a cognitive therapy tattoo, right? I've never <laughs> met anyone that had a, a quote from Albert Ellis tattooed on them, but I keep meeting people that have got Stoic tattoos, like so they'll have something that symbolizes Stoicism, or, or they'll have a quote from the Meditations tattooed on their arm or something like that. And, mm. you know, that, that symbolizes something to me, like people identify with these sayings and ideas at a deeper level, like it's a, like Buddhism or Christianity or something. It's a, a philosophy of life to them. But also, you know, it may be, you know, I'll, I'll stick my neck out there and say something very unfashionable, which is uh, maybe the Stoics were just right. You know, maybe some of the, the psychological and even philosophical principles that Stoicism is based on are correct. Uh, or closer to the truth than the alternatives. The Stoics believed in the cognitive theory of emotion, and 2,000 years later, that's now substantiated by huge volumes of research evidence. Um, so, you know, they arguably, they were just right about that, and, uh, and we now know that they were right about it. So when people tell themselves it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about it, you know, that's a principle that they can apply throughout life and they find consistently helpful because it is accurate. Um, whereas other self-help principles and new age philosophies and stuff are, are maybe based on shakier foundations. Mm. Uh, that's a really good point. I, I do also see people with stoic tattoos and yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny how you don't see <laughs> a, a cognitive. 
cognitive therapy tattoos on people. Uh, what is the overlap between Buddhism and Stoicism? Well, that's, a, that's another big cold question. So the first thing I'll do is apologize about my answer to that because I would say Buddhism, I think Buddhism, some people disagree with me about this, although I studied Buddhism for a couple of years at university, funnily enough. But mm-hmm. Buddhism is a very diverse tradition. So you've got things like the Four Noble Truths, but really there are many very different forms of Buddhism. So it's difficult to, to make generalizations about what Buddhism represents. Um, and, and Stoicism has a little bit of diversity to it as well. So it's tricky to make a, a simple comparison between uh, those two things because they're both quite complex. However, um, the I mean, arguably, in ancient philosophy, the, there were, you know, several major schools of ancient Hellenistic philosophy. And the way that they're normally compared, and actually Cicero does this very explicitly in Definibus, the way people compared them was by asking what they defined as the fundamental goal of life, the te- the telos. Um, and that's what distinguished them. So the Stoics said that the fundamental goal of life is virtue, or arate, and the Epicureans said that the goal of life is pleasure, or hedone, or ataraxia, tranquility. And so that's how people distinguished philosophies. So if you're going to make a comparison from the Greco-Roman point of view, you would say, well, what is the fundamental goal of life in Buddhism? And actually, it's not entirely clear what the answer to that question would be except that maybe it's nirvana uh, depending mm-hmm. on whether you're Hinayana or a, a Mahayana Buddhist you might conceptualize that slightly differently but if it's nirvana and the cessation of suffering that's the fundamental goal in Buddhism that sounds more like Epicureanism in some ways it sounds like the goal is a, a, a kind of subjective state of peace of mind and that other things might be similar to, Buddha, uh, to Stoicism, but they're kind of subordinate to that. Whereas Stoicism makes something else more fundamental. It makes wisdom more fundamental than peace of mind. Although many people will say, well, aren't they the same thing or aren't they closely related? The Stoics would say, no, nah, it makes a bit of difference which one you think comes first or which one you think is, is most fundamental. So... You know, people will argue about that till the cows come home, but certainly the Stoics thought that that made a practical difference. And so we don't know what they would have said about the Buddhists, but I think they would have said it's similar and they would have admired a lot of aspects of Buddhism, but they would have probably argued with them a little bit as well about what the the, the real goal was or the real priority in life. Mm, interesting. And do you think that the like the enlightened state that the... The Buddhists claim to be able to achieve like the Buddha himself. Do you think there's a kind of a stoic version of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, what word would they use? Like ataraxia is a bit like that. Or eudaimonia has a kind of similar connotation in some ways to nirvana a, a little bit. So that eudaimonia in Greek means is usually translated as happiness, but that's a really garbage translation. And a better translation would be flourishing or fulfillment. Um, so it's the kind of pinnacle, it's the optimum state for a human being to be in. It's better defined as the condition of a being that's living the best possible life. So it's fulfillment, basically. But in Greek, it mean, its literal meaning is something more mystical. Because um, daemonon, uh, or daemonos, is a spiritual being. Um, and it kind of might, it, for the Platonists, it came to imply something like your higher self. Um, mm. Or the divine spark within us, and you just means good or well. So it means having a good inner 
divine spark or a good relationship with your higher self. So it means something kind of slightly spiritual and, and metaphysical, but it also refers to someone's fulfillment. So this term, which is foundational to all Greek philosophy, um, we can kind of compare a little bit to the, the, the Buddhist concept of uh, nirvana. And then it, eudaim eudaimonia means something slightly different to Platonists, Aristotelians, Stoics, Epicureans and Cynics. They all have a, a slightly different take on what it looks like in practice. But mm -hmm. you could definitely compare many aspects of Buddhism to Stoicism on many different levels. Um, I mean, I guess the Stoics don't really seem to have done seated meditation in the same kind of formal way, but they, they certainly employed meditative or contemplative practices um, throughout their, their their day on a regular basis. They probably didn't sit cross-legged, right, and have beads mm -hmm. and stuff like that or incense, but they certainly sat down and deliberately practiced visualization and contemplative exercises. And they would definitely have recognized the Buddhists as doing something kind of similar in that respect. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I can see that there's a, there's an overlap there then, uh, regarding the modern stoicism that I see, um, like, especially from people like Ryan Holiday, uh, there is a big emphasis on like how stoicism can help us be more resilient, which is, I find very, very empowering. But what about how can Stoic? Is there much in Stoicism about how we can experience more joy and um, you know, like have a skip in our step? Yeah, as well. Well, funnily enough, there actually is. Like, and and people kind of overlook that. And I, as I, I'd give some credit to Bill Irving uh, because his book, A Guide to the Good Life, I I try to reach into the recesses of my memory a bit here, but the subtitle of that is something like The Art of Stoic Joy, isn't it? I, I need to. You know, your listeners don't need to go and look that up. But he explicitly acknowledges this in his book. And I, I've tried to highlight it in my books as well. The Stoics have a very formal, a highly structured... Way. I mean, the odd thing about Stoicism, right, is that the, the books we have surviving, Seneca's writings, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, are provide an unsystematic account of a highly systematic philosophy. So we don't really have a systematic account of Stoicism, except mm. actually in Cicero. In De Finibus, we have something that's more like a systematic description of Stoic ethical theory. So that's another reason why I think people should go and read Cicero. But, um, sorry, what was your question again? I've gone a bit of... Uh, just like how there's a lot of emphasis on how stoicism oh, can enjoy. make you more yeah. resilient. All right. enjoy, I, yeah. I, I'll tell you where I was going with that. So the, the Stoics have a, a highly structured concept of emotion, um, a classificatory system of for emotion and psychopathology as well, actually. So they, they have a system for classifying negative or unhealthy emotions, and they also have a system for classifying healthy emotions. Uh, they call them the eupathiae, or the, the healthy or positive emotions or passions. And one of them uh, is chara, or joy, um, and that plays a central place in, in Stoic psychology. And Marcus Aurelius in particular refers to it quite a lot, or, or to related concepts quite a lot, 
throughout the meditation. So joy plays an important role in stoicism, as do other healthy emotions like love and friendship, for example, and even healthy aversion, like having a, a, a healthy rational conscience about things. Uh, the Stoics thought kind of painful or unpleasant emotions could could be healthy and, and appropriate sometimes. But they certainly think joy is important. And, and Marcus describes three main ways in which Stoics experience rational, healthy joy. And he says the main one is that Stoics delight in virtue, which kind of seems mm. obvious if you know much about the Stoic theory. Virtue is the goal of life in Stoicism. Um, and virtue is synonymous with practical wisdom, incidentally, for Stoics. So a, a Stoic would rejoice first and foremost in, in wisdom and, and, and the other virtues. And he particularly would rejoice in his own experience of these things because that's the most important thing for him to achieve. But he also experiences joy, secondly, in perceiving the wisdom, flourishing and virtue of other people. So in his friends and role models and teachers and in the people that he admires and even in the tiny glimmers or seeds, as the Stoics say, of virtue that we see in ordinary everyday people who are a mixture of good and bad, like the Stoics would look for the good in people and rejoice in the seeds of virtue that they perceive in them. So that's another source of joy. There's a joy that Stoics take in their own capacity for excellence, and also they take joy in, in perceiving the capacity or potential for excellence in the rest of humankind. And also there's another type of joy that they take. There's another Greek word, charis, which means gratitude and is closely related mm. to the word for joy. And that's the other type of uh, positive emotion or joy that Marcus talks about. So there's a type of gratitude that Stoics experience by um, picturing uh, or thinking about the things that fate gives them, the things that they benefit from and experience in life, um, and you know whether they're healthy or, or constructive or not. So Stoics have a funny attitude towards external goods. Like they're meant to view them with indifference, but they do rationally prefer some things over others. So Stoics may prefer health, wealth, and good reputation over their opposites. They prefer mm. health over sickness, but they're not attached to it. They don't demand it. They don't view it as intrinsically good. But nevertheless, they would experience gratitude for health. They would experience gratitude for not being in poverty, for having a, uh, enough to, money to feed themselves, for example, and so on. And the, the, the Stoics link this to the, uh, their idea of contemplating transience or impermanence, which again, obviously, is similar to the concept of impermanence in Buddhism. So Marcus at one point says that if we imagine things that we don't have, things that are absent, as though they were present, uh, then we desire them, we crave what we don't have, and that's painful and potentially upsets our tranquility. But he mm -hmm. says, what happens if you do the opposite and think of things that are present as if they were absent? And he says, then you can train yourself to experience rather than desire, to experience gratitude. And that's a much healthier um, emotion to have, but it takes more effort to evoke that emotion in ourselves. So the Stoics would typically contemplate loss and contemplate the impermanence of things that they're enjoying in life in order to remind themselves to experience gratitude for them, which is a, another form of Stoic joy. Mm. Wow, yeah. I think that, um, that yeah, that's um, a, a big 
missing piece of the puzzle for many people who study stoicism and i think that you clearing that up there will be really useful for our listeners so thank you for that that's an important part um, i should just as a little addenda to that for the stoics yeah um these positive emotions are kind of a added bonus in life they 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 follow on from virtue so the the stoics are kind of careful to say and i think this is very astute of them to say that the goal of life isn't joy but joy is kind of a side effect. They say it supervenes on the goal of life. So the goal of life is wisdom and virtue. But if you are wise and virtuous, you'll probably experience joy as a consequence of that. But if you try to get a shortcut to joy, that potentially can lead you in a, a, round in a circle or, or lead you in the, the wrong direction. So the Stoics thought it's not healthy to try and pursue these emotions directly, but to try and pursue the underlying cognitive states, right, which which um, you know tend to lead to healthy emotions as a consequence. So those healthy emotions are like a, should be seen as a, a really nice bonus. Yeah, like an added if they, bonus. If they, if they come amazing, but if they don't, then you, you still have if, your own yeah. pro- progress as a stoic. Yeah, you shouldn't abandon the pursuit of wisdom just because it's not making you feel joy. <laughs> like, so they thought, no, it's, the main thing is to pursue wisdom and then that should, like, that will lead to love and joy and friendship and all these good mm. things. Um, but that's not why you're doing it. And Kant actually says a similar thing, you know, many centuries later, um, that there's a type of happiness that supervenes on virtue and wisdom, but it shouldn't really be seen as the goal of life. I first heard about you in a book by the psychological illusionist Darren Brown. He wrote a book called Happy, and it's it's, it's a book on like, he covers all the different um, ideas on happiness. And he's a big advocate of stoicism, and he talks a lot about stoicism. Um, it's a really really good good read. Um, but he does mention that like one of the issues he has it's only a small issue is that he thinks that the Stoics. Um, sort of like saw anxiety and these sort of like ang- anxious emotions. Um, they demonize them a little bit too much and anxiety is actually useful for growth and we need to feel a little bit anxious and afraid at times to help us grow. So I just wanted to ask you, do you agree with this? And in a more general sense, do you see any weaknesses with the Stoic philosophy well actually first of all like i would say i I have to read a lot of self-help and personal development books for a number of reasons like um and you know darren brown's book happy is one of the best books that i've read in a long time and i thought it was beautifully written i think he's a talented writer and also many of these books are formulaic as hell right and Mm -hmm. his isn't I would describe it as a very reflective book. Um, he's very considered in the things that he has to say about different psychological techniques and philosophical concepts. You can tell he's kind of working them out in his own mind and he brings the reader into that kind of internal dialogue in a very interesting way. I thought that was a great book and I'm, I'm sure it's never going to reach the audience it, it deserves. Um, mm-hmm. sadly, you know, although I'm sure many, many people will read it, but I think, I really think it should be, you know, top of the bestseller list in the US, for example, mm-hmm. um, for, for self-help books. It's much better than most of the other books that I've read recently. And actually, I, like, I speak to Darren a little bit. He came to one of our conferences. So like, I, I should say like, yeah, I think he's a good guy. Um, mm-hmm. but also, uh, the, what he says in that book, I, 
I tend to say when people criticize stoicism like that, I'll often respond by saying, look, I think you're more of a stoic than you realize, buddy. Right. And so I wrote a mm. review of his book and I, I, if I remember rightly, that was kind of the angle that I took. And I said, I actually disagree with you. And I think you probably are more into stoicism than you realize. Like, so this thing about the Stoics being negative about anxiety, the Stoics distinguish between three types of emotions. So it's highly systematic philosophy. We have an unsystematic account of it. Uh, they had mm -hmm. a classificatory system where they distinguished between good, bad, and different emotions. So we talked a moment ago uh, about the good emotions, the eupathiae. They also have a, a system for classifying unhealthy emotions, the passions, they call them. And that leads to a lot of confusion because some people have assumed that the Stoics are condemning all emotion, whereas really they specifically say that they're concerned with negative emotions that are irrational, excessive, and unhealthy um, the Greek word for passion is related to our word pathology, as in psychopathology, and uh, it implies suffering. Like so, the the Greeks and the Romans were very aware that when they talk about passions, they're they're talking about pathological emotions mainly. Although their definition of that is broader than ours would be today, um, to be fair. But they're also talking about emotions that are in a sense voluntary or potentially under our control, because the Stoics think that we need to distinguish carefully, as we we talked about earlier. Uh, between what's up to us and what's not. So you might think, well, surely are, are our negative emotions up to us? I thought the Stoics said we, we should kind of be indifferent towards things that aren't under our control. But we don't normally think of our emotions as being up to us. Well, the Stoics mm -hmm. are talking about a type of emotion, a passion, an unhealthy passion, that's in a sense under voluntary control, and they say so. And in fact, in modern cognitive psychotherapy, it's very important that we distinguish between voluntary and involuntary aspects of emotions. And people, I would say, very often suffer and experience mental health problems uh, in part because they take too much responsibility and struggle too much with aspects of emotion that aren't under their control. And whereas they should learn to accept those and view them as inevitable and treat them with greater indifference. And at the same time, they often neglect and fail to take responsibility or ownership for aspects of emotion that are under their voluntary control. So this is kind of pa the paradox of control, if you like, when it comes to emotion. Um, and it really often requires the help of a psychotherapist to get people to cl more clearly distinguish between what bits of their emotion are under the control and what bits aren't. It's certainly not true that none of our emotions are under our control. There are certainly aspects that are under direct voluntary control. And so the, the Stoics also have a, a term, uh, propathei, which is kind of tricky to translate, but it basically means involuntary emotional reactions, or it, it could be translated as proto-passions, or uh, Seneca calls them the first movements of the soul. But basically, they're ref they're clearly referring to our initial physiological emotional reactions. So the the examples they give, for example, for instance, are if someone is startled that they might jump, their heart rate might increase, they might begin to shake, they might turn pale, and so those kind of initial autonomic responses, if you like, physiological responses. The Stoics said, well, those aren't under voluntary control, right? Um, mm -hmm. Those just happen to us. Like It's kind of a physical reaction, but they're part of what we mean by emotion. And certainly when we talk about anxiety, often a lot of it consists in these physiological and also to some extent some psychological 
uh, responses, automatic thoughts and impressions, which are clearly not under voluntary control. And so the Stoics think that those propathei and automatic impressions should not, we should learn not to view them as bad or negative, but actually to view them with indifference, studied indifference, and to gain greater detachment from them and to be more accepting towards them. And so sometimes people think the Stoics are overly negative about anxiety and other unpleasant emotions. Mm. But I would say, no, 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 if you dig deeper, what they're really saying is that you should be more accepting towards what you're perhaps referring to there and more discriminating or to distinguish more carefully the voluntary aspects of those emotions and to take greater ownership for those. So the the, the heart racing, the Stoics would say, that's not voluntary, you just have to accept that. In fact, you're crazy if you try to struggle against it, you'll probably make it worse. Um, however, some of the stuff you're saying to yourself in response to that is probably under your voluntary control and you could do that differently. Hmm. Wow. That's a powerful distinction. Okay, yeah, you completely cleared that up for me. Um so yeah, I would I would love to see you and Darren actually discuss these uh, in a kind of like a back and forth. There's a blog I'm article sure I wrote it. about it and I, he he's read it, I think I, I sent it to him. Um but yeah, I I'm always happy to discuss these things with people. Just as an aside, there's a famous passage in a fragment from Epictetus. Um, that is referred to, it's in a story by a Roman author called Aulus Gellius, who was a contemporary mm-hmm. of Marcus Aurelius. So it's one of the more obscure Stoic fragments, if you like, but it happens to really clearly explain this point. And uh, he tells a story about a Stoic teacher who was on a ship going from Greece to Italy and he was caught in a storm. And Aulus saw, um, Aulus Gellius saw this Stoic teacher turn pale, but he remained silent. And his hands were shaking and everyone else is freaking out and screaming because they all thought they were going to die. And then eventually they survived and they get to shore and they were kind of offloading the ship and they were, they were, they were sitting, um, um, in the, by the, in the dock and talking and stuff. And people were complaining about it and going, Oh my God, I can't believe we survived this and still freaking out and stuff. And the stoic had calmed down and, and Aulus Gellius approached him and said, listen, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I noticed you, you looked as scared as everyone else, although you weren't really kind of running around and, and freaking out and stuff like they were. He said, like, so I thought Stoics were meant to be kind of, uh, impassive and unaffected by stress. And the guy pulled out of his satchel one of the lost books of Epictetus and gave it to Gellius to read. And he explained to him that the founders of Stoicism, Zeno and Chrysippus and Cleanthes, had taught this distinction between involuntary and voluntary aspects of emotion. So he said, just like everyone else, even he says, even like the most hardened sailors, in the middle of a storm like that, where it looks like you might die, of course I turn pale and my hands shake, just like everyone else. Those are propathei, they're involuntary, natural emotional reactions. And we should accept those as natural and inevitable, that even an animal would experience those emotions um, in a stressful situation like that. But what Stoic doesn't do is add to them by dwelling on them, perpetuating them and amplifying them and by projecting or imposing value judgments on top of them. So the Stoic should com- regain his composure more quickly afterwards. And so he wasn't running around screaming and stuff like other people and he'd calm mm-hmm. down more quickly afterwards. And he said, that that's the difference. We're not like stone, we're not made from stone. Like we have feelings mm-hmm. and stuff, but we're careful not to perpetuate them and make them worse, which is what you saw those other people doing. Right. Yeah. That actually reminds me of like a, something that the Buddha talked about with the, the two arrows, 
Uh, so the first arrow is just the pain. Mm-hmm. And then the second arrow is the thoughts you have about the pain. And yeah. that, you know, you can't avoid, you can't avoid the first arrow, but you should, you can, can avoid the second. And, yeah. Uh, that's exactly the point. Seneca says something similar where he talks about how animals like deer, if they're startled by a predator, their heart will race and they'll run away in fear. But then when the threat has gone, they calm down quickly and they just return to grazing as normal. And he said, mm. so humans have these emotions as well, but because we can reason and think about the past and the future, we carry on worrying about it afterwards. So he says, reason, our greatest gift, is also our greatest burden. Like, because it allows us to perpetuate anxiety, which for animals would be, you know, done and dusted and over with once the threat's gone away. Um, so the Stoics would say the animal part of emotion is natural and we should accept it mm-hmm. with indifference. Um, but we've just got to be careful that we don't misuse reason to amplify it or perpetuate it in an unhealthy way. Right. Uh, well, I, I'm totally loaded up on and, and super, um, motivated now to dive <laughs> deeper into stoicism. That, enough from, stoicism for from, one day. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, it kind of it is, but it's like I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to diving into yeah, yeah. into the into the things you recommend, and I want to finish the rest of your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Um, I've started it, love it, and um, yeah, you are, I think, got to be one of the most knowledgeable people on Stoicism, like in the world. Like uh, you, <laughs> I don't think there are many people that could uh, compete with you on Stoic knowledge. So. What's my hobby? And I guess, you know, I feel like an old man now. I'm not quite as, I'm not quite as old as I said. I'm 47 now, but I keep saying to people, mm. when I first got into this, like there weren't really that many other people that, that seemed to be that interested in stoicism. You know, when I, I talked to therapists about it and stuff, they kind of said to me, why are you, why do you keep going on about stoicism? Like, you know, and <laughs> uh, it, 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 people thought it was a little bit of an odd idea. And, you know, 20 years later, like, We've kind of won the argument. We won the argument about ten years ago, and and now everybody yeah. takes it for granted that that stoicism is consists of a, a load of psychological exercises similar to CBT. Whereas when I started off, people didn't believe that, and you know we had to kind of cite all the evidence and prove the point over and over again. So there's still a lot of things to kind of there are misconceptions about stoicism that still have to be corrected. But things have changed a lot recently, and and people have become much more. Uh, started to view stoicism in a much more positive and favorable light. Um, I, you know, so I'm pleased to have seen that happen in my lifetime, as it were. Yeah. Um, stoicism seems to be just like on the rise, uh, on high existence. We're publishing more and more articles uh, about stoicism. Hopefully, we can publish some of your writing on the site too. Um, and hopefully we can talk again. Yep. Um, but for now, where, where can people find more about, about you and, and connect with you? Well, if they want, if they want to go to my website, there's like tons of stuff on there because, um, I write a lot. So I put a lot of stuff online and mm-hmm. my blog and website is just my name. It's Donald Roberts and all one word and then dot name, not dot com, but dot name. And also I have an e-learning site that's attached to it with lots of downloadable stuff and free courses and things. And that's just uh, on the subdomain learn. So it's learn, L-E-A-R-N, learn.donaldrobertson.name. So if they want to look at either of those two sites, they'll, they'll find t- 
tons and tons and tons of resources about stoicism. And also, I should give a plug for the modern stoicism organization, the non-profit, and I'm a member of its multidisciplinary team. And so the modern stoicism website has tons and tons of resources on it as well. It's got over 500 articles by loads of different people. And it, the modern stoicism wow. website is just modernstoicism.com, like all one word, modernstoicism.com. And your books, just like, where's the best place to purchase those? You can, you should be able to buy them anywhere, like, but you know, from Amazon or whatever. So, Amazon. how to think like a Roman emperor comes out on the second of April, um, and but you can pre-order it now if people want to pre-order it. Uh, that's a good idea actually, because you potentially get it slightly cheaper that way if you're lucky. So they, mm-hmm. you can get that on Amazon or from the publisher Macmillan or you know, pretty much any online bookstore will sell it. Excellent. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, uh, Donald, thank you very much. I've learned uh, so much talking to you. Well, thanks for um, having me along. And I know you've got a slightly different audience from the usual like stoic group. So hopefully we'll reach some people who are kind of on the periphery this way. I'd like to think so we, we kind of reach out to a slightly different community. Yeah, I think like our audience um, across the board is very fascinated by stoicism, but they just haven't um, figured out a way to connect with the text in, in the way that like more avid readers of stoicism have. So um, yeah, I think the pointers that you've gave in this discussion would be really useful. Awesome. So, thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that, took some value from it. A couple of quick things. If you can leave a rating for the podcast, wherever you're listening to it, that really helps new people find it. And I also love reading reviews. So let me know what you think about it. And if you want to go further and get access to all of my premium meditations and audio courses, Ask Me Anything, workshops, etc. Consider subscribing to Stoic Handbook Premium with a free trial, either directly within Apple Podcasts or over at stoichandbook.supercast.com. It's the same thing, just two different ways to access it. And I'll see you back here for the next episode of the Stoic Handbook Podcast.